Frank Goretti is Associate Professor of History in African American and African Diaspora Studies at Columbia University. He specializes in sports history, urban history, and the history of the African diaspora in the Americas. He's the author of the award-winning book, Foraging Diaspora, Afro-Cubans and African-Americans in a World of Empire and Jim Crow. I invited Frank to the Dean's Table to reflect on how he came to study history rather than political science, to talk about his book on the African diaspora, and to discuss his latest research on the history of popular sports. Welcome to the Dean's Table, Frank. Thank you for having me. So you're a New Yorker. How was it growing up in the city? How do I answer that in a concise uh, way? It was amazing, and it was a struggle. You know, so I came of age here in the 19, late 70s, 80s. I'm the child of a Dominican immigrant uh, whose family arrived here not too far from this neighborhood in the 1950s. Hmm. My mother is Puerto Rican, born in New York in the Bronx, and I lived in this amazing transcultural black, Latino, Jewish world uh-huh. that the Bronx was uh, at that time. And so... You know, they're working class. Uh, my father did not finish high school. My mom got her GED. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and yet, because I realize this in retrospect now, because we had a welfare state here, mm-hmm. <laughs> and because they connected themselves into public institu- you know, institutions, like so my mom was a school secretary, my dad eventually wound up working for the New York Board of Education, among other jobs, mm-hmm. they were able to somehow uh, live their version of the American dream insofar as having stable employment, mm-hmm. uh, affordable housing, and in a curious way, they benefited from, you know, arriving in that period of, of U.S. and New York history. But, you know, it's the 70s and 80s and crime, and New York was in a fiscal crisis, and uh, so that was going on, too. But I, I think, you know, as I look at it, and maybe I'm romanticizing that period a bit, you know, I think that period of New York history is, is misunderstood. I think we, we think about New York in that period as crisis, as burned-down buildings in the Bronx. And, you know, my experience growing up here, for the most part, was not like that. It was, you know, fairly stable integrated for the most part, mm-hmm. working class histories where I encountered, you know, black people of various iterations. I encountered Jews and I mean, we, there was racism and all that stuff existed, but but it was a really interesting time to grow up here. And where, where did you grow up? Co-op City. Co-op City. So yes. tell, tell our listeners about Co-op City. Co-op City is a fascinating place. There was the largest subsidized housing development in the United States of America. It's in the Northeast Bronx. It was built in the late 60s and early 70s. And again, this is an example of my experience of co-op was different than the way I think we often talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. It was built, conceived of, or certainly influenced by uh, the desire for whites to leave the South Bronx, Mm -hmm. to move to the Northeast Bronx as Puerto Ricans and blacks and other populations of color were moving to the South Bronx and the West Bronx. So certainly it was predominantly Jewish, but then over time it became a much more integrated place. My mother's sister married a Jewish man, Mm -hmm. uh, and then the rest of us just sort of followed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, I've got all these images from that era. And, Mm -hmm. you know, again, my father was a security guard at Co-op City, so we were very Very attuned to crime and those sorts of things at the time. But you know, it, again, you know, I played baseball there. There were actually there was green spaces, public school, um, you know, all that stuff was well, I really benefited from being in that environment. So as the world knows, uh, hip hop started in the Bronx and you already declared that you're a Bronxite. Um, so this is probably a silly question, but uh, were you exposed to the music and culture as a resident there? That is not a silly question, Fred, <laughs> because it was all around me. 
I mean, it was all around me, and yet I wasn't a hip-hop head, hmm. you know? So again, the master narrative of hip-hop is that it comes from the soft rock, but right. it was really all over right. the rocks, right? So people were breakdancing, people were rapping, all the music was all around me, boom boxes, everything, all those things that you associate with hip-hop in that era was, was everywhere in the Bronx at that time. It was around me, but I, you know, I was a kind of a... 70s music kid. Oh my God. So, so I was into Stevie Wonder. <laughs> I was into Marvin Gaye. You know, it's so like, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I appreciated this revolution that was happening around right, me. Right, right, right. And I was a shy kid. So I, you know, I wasn't as uh, kinesthetically talented as uh, some folks. So I, you know, breaking was not something that I could do. Right. But a lot of my friends did. And, mm-hmm. you know, people literally after school, people would come out, put that cardboard box on the floor, and then people were just dead. This, this, I mean, it was just extraordinary, right? But I was sort of indifferent to it because it was just like, all right, that's just what people are into now. Right. That's <laughs> funny because I had the similar experience, and I thought I was just different. And so I didn't have this moment like, oh, wow, wow, this new music, hip-hop. And I was listening to 70s soul, you yes. know, I'm yes. a 70s kid, yes, and jazz, yes. and also a little garage, which was coming, mm-hmm. or house music, mm-hmm. which had its soul roots. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I feel like I missed the hip-hop. Boat. And my father, you know, who was a huge music connoisseur, you know, I mean, part of that was his influence, right? So mm-hmm. in our household, you know, we listened to, you know, Menenge and Salsa, right. but he was big into Joni Mitchell. He was big into Bob Dylan. He was big into Miles Davis. I learned about Miles Davis from my right. dad. He was big in the game. You know, so like part of it was that I had a rich musical uh, soundscape in my apartment, mm-hmm. you know. And so hip hop was just one of many things that you know, I was exposed to. Right, right. So you went upstate. You stayed in the state. You went to college at Syracuse University. Uh-huh. What was that like? So I pretty quickly, once I just knew that college could be possible for me, I decided, you know, I'm going to try to leave the city. You know, and part of that was because, and we could circle back to this later, is that I was a huge sports person. Mm-hmm. So the 1980s was the heyday of Big East college basketball. So this is embarrassing to admit, but my understanding of college in part was informed by what I saw on television when I saw these athletes, black mm-hmm. athletes, playing uh, for Syracuse. So I said, you know, wow, that's interesting. Where's Syracuse? So it started from there. And then eventually I learned it was a good enough school that I could mm-hmm. get into right. uh, as a New York City public school kid. So I decided against my mother's will, wishes to apply. And I, and I convinced her that I could go because she wanted me to stay in the city. Mm-hmm. And it made sense. I mean, I was the first person to go to college in my family. Mm-hmm. So and I get there and it was an extraordinary time to be there. It, Syracuse recruits a lot of students, or did anyway, from New York City. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of black and Latino students there. And 1989-90, my freshman year there, was, was a year of extraordinary student mobilization. Mm-hmm. So when I arrived visiting the campus, Black students were mobilizing around black studies. This is also the heyday of kind of Malcolm X resurgent or reiterated kind of Afrocentric mm-hmm. politics that was mm-hmm. very prominent at Syracuse. And so for whatever reason, even though I didn't come from a politicized family, it just spoke to me. Seeing all these black and Latino students who were taking charge of their educational experience, who were kind of articulating insurgent politics. I didn't agree with all of it, but certainly I, 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 it spoke to me. So I got an extraordinary political and then eventually academic experience there. And it was also a racially polarized place. So it was a place mm. where I, I sort of encountered forms of racism that I hadn't as a New Yorker. You know? In what ways? 
Well, it was just more explicitly segregated. You oh, know, like racism existed in New York, but because of the density of the population, mm-hmm. you know, and because, you know, there was a certain iteration of whiteness that I experienced, mm-hmm. Italians, Jews, mm-hmm. I, you know, that's a different kind of whiteness right. than what I was exposed to at Syracuse, which, you know, was waspier or, mm-hmm. or more affluent classes of people. Right. And so for whatever reason, at the time, I, I felt pretty quickly that I had to either, I had to decide who I was going to affiliate with. It was a very yeah. racially, it, 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 was, it was Jim Crow-ish. Really? Yes, it was. No, yeah. no doubt. And so mm-hmm. once I figured out quickly that, you know, I was hanging around when I first got there, you know, mostly white students, but it mm-hmm. was clear to, you know, I was encountering racism from them and I, mm-hmm. and I didn't like what I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness there was this robust cultural social world of black and students of color there that mm-hmm. I just plugged myself into. Mm-hmm. You know, so then socially I found my way because I found those institutions. Uh, the Latino student organization was being founded at the time. And so I was in- involved with them and the black student groups. And then I encountered amazing professors. So my mentor Mentors at the time mm-hmm. were Naim Inatula, who was a, a his international political economist mm-hmm. who specialized in uh, colonialism and imperialism in the Middle East and South Asia. And this was the height of the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. And I took his class that I think it was just simply called, I don't know, Problems in International Relations or something like that. Uh-huh. And what did we read in Naim's class? We read Said. We, we read uh, <laughs> you know, Saeed. post-colonial yes. theory. We read the history of British imperialism in the Middle East and South Asia, and he got up there and he was combating all this sort of imperialist apologetic explanations for the Gulf War, and he just turned me on to ideas. Hmm. And he was a serious mentor for me. So he's one. And then Horace Campbell, who is a Pan-Africanist political scientist mm-hmm. who comes out of the Caribbean uh, black radical traditions, very much influenced by Walter Rodney and C.L.R. James. Mm-hmm. He was my professor, and he intimidated me because he was brilliant. <laughs> yes. But nonetheless, he opened my world to this broader tradition of black radical mm-hmm. politics and history. But coming at it mostly from the Caribbean and also Pan-Africanist traditions. So, mm-hmm. you know, so I had a extraordinary experience uh, with Horace and with John Nagel, who was a lesser known uh, kind of comparative politics guy. But he taught me Marxist theory. Mm. So, you know, I got a lot of political theory, I think now in right. retrospect at Syracuse, which uh, then really shaped my understanding of political science at the time. Is that why you majored in political science, because of the courses you took? Or did you have something else in mind? Like, I, I majored in political science as an undergraduate, and I just knew I was going to law school, yeah. right? So how did you fall into majoring in political science? Great as an question. Under- Great question. You know, so my parents gave me a gift. As a first-generation college student, mm-hmm. uh, they did not put pressure on me to study something that, uh, that would bring uh, the family greater financial security, mm-hmm. like many mm-hmm. students experience, understandably so. To make a long story short, yes, it was Naeem's class. Naeem's class, that class I talked about that year during the Gulf War, it was mm-hmm. my sophomore year, 1990, 1991, hmm. where I just was compelled by the notion of studying politics, but anchored in literature and humanistic forms of knowledge. And that, that was Naeem, right? So... So, yeah, it was the classes, and, and it was the, the political environment at the time, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, Spike Lee's Malcolm X comes out in 1992. Mm-hmm. This is, again, as I said earlier, the heyday of the resurgence of Malcolm X. You know, right. Louis Farrakhan came to campus at the huh. time. And, you know, my generation of black and Latino students weren't quite hip to the kind of differences between the nation of Islam and, and Malcolm X. It was all sort of the same thing yeah, to them yeah. in some ways. But, again, uh, it turned me on to the possibility of radical politics and intellectual life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you decided to go to graduate school and you initially wanted to get a PhD in that great discipline of political science. What changed your mind? So, so it's really funny. So I 
I did what I tell students not to do. I was determined to go straight into graduate school. So I applied to a bunch of poli-sci programs. I think I even spoke to Charles Hamilton. I applied to Columbia, you know, but I wasn't going to make it at Columbia. I didn't have the, I didn't have the grades. I didn't have the GRE. Uh, but in the end, I wound up getting into Northwestern. Hmm. And Adolf Reed was at Northwestern. Yes, he was. Right? I and took my, a seminar with him you know, as a graduate yes. student. There. So anyway, make a long story short, I moved to Chicago because mm-hmm. I'm like, I want to go to grad school. Mm-hmm. And then I rethought that and I decided, you know what? I'm not so sure that this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at the program, the only person who seemed to be doing things that I was interested in pursuing, which at the time was this kind of historically informed, anti-colonial, black, radical mm-hmm. politics... You know, Adolf was pretty much the only person there at the time. And this is also in a period mm-hmm. where I, my, my sense of the discipline at the time, and I could be wrong, was rational choice theory was very popular. Oh, Quantitative yes, methods were very popular. Yes. Right? Yes. So, and that was not me. I was mm-hmm. not that kind of scholar. I'm still mm-hmm. not. So I went to Chicago and I decided, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm going to take a year off. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And, and then I decided, partly because Horace and other folks who were in poli-sci, mm-hmm. Horace had been at Northwestern, and right. he's like, you know, you really should think about history. Mm. And history at Syracuse was not interesting. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a You know, it was very traditional. Mm-hmm. And so I really only took one history class at Syracuse in the history department, although I had history all over the place. To make a long story short, I, I decided to apply to history programs, and I got a master's at University of Illinois, Chicago, and then I, I was there for three years, and then I went to Michigan, and I got my Ph.D. there. Mm-hmm. So, at least in the 90s, I'm not sure that this was the case when you were there. There were stellar historians of black lives there, such as Robin Kelly, Earl Lewis, Elsa Barkley-Brown, others. Did you work with any of these folks? Uh, Robin had just left. Mm-hmm. Elsa had just left. Earl Lewis was moving into administration, right. and that affected me in more profound ways, actually, uh, because he was an amazing dean of the graduate school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he actually showed me what a good administrator can look like. Mm-hmm. You know, Earl was the kind of person that you, you as a graduate, you could walk into his office, mm-hmm. you know, and you could, you know, you can engage with him. He's a very approachable person. Mm-hmm. And that shaped the way he administrated. So I never took a class with Earl, but I was I was around Earl quite mm-hmm. a bit, mm-hmm. uh, and I counted him as a mentor, although I technically wasn't his student. So so uh, at the time, Michelle Mitchell, a yes. historian, had just arrived, and Michelle was awesome because she was you know one of the folks at the time who were really pushing through gender and black nationalism, and you know so I took a class like that with her. I mean, my primary advisor was Rebecca Scott, a historian right. of Cuba. We haven't talked about the Caribbean yet, but but part of the reason why I went there is because I wanted to work on race in Cuba. And uh, so she was there. Fred Cooper, an Africanist, was around. You know, Michigan, the, the kind of history, American studies world was pretty small. So there was a lot of cross-area synergies mm-hmm. around slavery, about empire, or post-colonial theory. You know, there was a history anthro program. Fernando Coronel, the late Fernando Coronel, was there. Um, a lot of folks were there at the time. So, And I, I took classes with a number of them. Mm-hmm. So I was able to create... a. a specializations in black diasporic history, but very much informed by Latin Americanists, anti-imperial thought, Latin Americanist historiography, but also uh, U.S. Afro-Am history. And so I was able to put together a diasporic program of mm-hmm. sorts, even though we didn't have a diasporic kind of concentration in the history department. Mm. So what was your dissertation about? So my dissertation wound up being a, a study of racial politics in Cuba in the early 20th century. I got into Cuba almost by accident. Let me backtrack. So I always did want to study the history of the Caribbean, because my family's from there. But at the time, uh, there weren't many historians working on Dominican history, and and a few more working on Puerto Rican history. And if you were going to work on the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, the place to work on was Cuba, because at least there was a literature, there was the fascination with the Cuban Revolution, Mm -hmm. there had been, uh, you know, long-standing debates about race in Cuba after the triumph of the Castro Revolution of 1959. 
So I figured out that Cuba was the place that I could uh, pursue these questions of thinking about essentially the black experience in the Spanish-speaking Americas, Hmm. because I was not satisfied with the kind of dominant narratives of of how we understand slavery and racism Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in those contexts at the time. Aline Helg's Our Rifles Share mm-hmm. was a pathbreaking book in 1995, uh, and it really started to open up questions around how racism got reconstituted in Cuba in a society that supposedly had this, this uh, the dominant nationality of racial egalitarianism. So my dissertation really sort of followed up on Helg's book. Right. Uh, but in the process of doing the research in Cuba, mm-hmm. it became pretty clear to me that Afro-Cuban experiences or their understandings of themselves as racialized and mm-hmm. as national citizens was very much informed by their encounters with African-American politics, mm-hmm. culture, and society. It became clear to me that to tell the story the way I wanted to tell it, I mm-hmm. had to think about the black experience beyond Cuba. Mm-hmm. And I had to, rather than use African-American sources as sort of backdrop just for archival material, the story that I was more compelled to tell was this interaction between Afro-Cuban associations and African-American, right. yes. Right. This is a story that warranted a broader frame of analysis beyond the island of Cuba. Right. And this is in your book, Foraging Diaspora, Afro-Cubans and African-Americans in a World of Empire and Jim Crow. Now, can you say a little bit more about those connections? Yeah. So many prominent African-American historical figures from the early 20th century, mm-hmm. Du Bois, right. Garvey, Booker T. Washington, um, Mary McLeod Bethune, you know, up until Malcolm X and beyond, all had connections to Cuba in one form or another. Some of them were shallow and some of them were deep. Mm-hmm. And so I became interested in this question of like, what, what is African-American history look like if we put it actively in conversation with Cuba? You know, and and part of that conversation had already happened because in the 1960s and 70s, you know, black activists here were very compelled by the Cuban Revolution. You know, Mm -hmm. they wanted to see this experiment uh, that was happening in Cuba that supposedly socialism had overthrown racism in Cuba. And so there was this ongoing debate in the 60s and 70s. Janetta Mm -hmm. Cole's involved in this. Many people, Angela Davis, among many people. But there's a history of that debate. There's mm-hmm. a history of that connection that people knew about after the revolution, but very, very little uh, known about before. Mm-hmm. So basically, it became a book about the social and cultural and political ties between different black institutions in both countries. So, mm-hmm. you know, Afro-Cubans had a rich associational life that resembles things that we see in the Jim Crow South. You know, recreational societies, mm-hmm. literary societies. You know, not political parties, although there was because the one that was started was was repressed. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but black associational, cultural, social, political life continued. Cultural. Too. Yes, absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we know this in in a musical sense, of course, with the mm-hmm. song and you know with other Afro-Cuban uh, musical right. traditions, culture, Santeria, Afro-Cuban religions, all that sort of stuff. But beyond that, the black associational life in Cuba was rich and deep. And so African-Americans knew that at the time, right? African-American intellectuals knew that. Mm -hmm. So I looked at the Booker T. Washington papers, and I kept seeing all these letters from Cuba, among other places. And the first international students who studied at Tuskegee in 1898, 1899, were from Cuba and Puerto Rico, actually. And part of that was engineered by U.S. imperialism, U.S. Mm -hmm. expansionism. But the Cuban connections, is what I argue in the book, were really developed by Afro-Cuban, aspiring, upperly mobile Afro-Cubans and Tuskegee, apart from the U.S. imperial mm-hmm. apparatus on the mm-hmm. island at the time. So the Tuskegee material was fascinating. I just love the idea of, of exploring this question of what was it like to be a, a Cuban of African descent in the middle of the Jim Crow South in 1900. Mm-hmm. And Tuskegee for them, you know, it was a challenging place, but it was a, a bit of a refuge for them because mm-hmm. they were able to pursue some advanced education. It's a very important moment for 
Afro-Cuban politics because they're, some of them are aspiring to be like Booker T. Washington, like just like Marcus mm-hmm. Garvey was, right? Right. Well, that that was my next question yes, is, yes. so does Garveyism or mm-hmm. Marcus Garvey's so-called Back to Africa movement, mm-hmm. there are uh, Garvey chapters there. Yes. yes UNIA, right. Universal Negro Improvement Association. Is that covered in... Yes, the second half of the book is, it uh, looks like Garveyism in Cuba. But again, as, a, as this transnational black network, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, historians knew that the largest number of UNIA divisions outside of the United States were in Cuba, 52. Mm-hmm. But I'm in the Archivo de Santa Clara, a very small archive in the middle of, of the island of Cuba, and mm-hmm. I've come across this reference to documents on the UNIA in Santa Clara. So that I asked the archivist, and she brings this gigantic folio of papers, really, which were these police records, surveillance records of the UNIA in central Cuba in the late 1920s. That's amazing. And that's when I realized I've got to write about Garveyism in Cuba, right? I've got to write about Garveyism as part of this bigger history of diasporic mm-hmm. community making, right? right. Uh, and it was amazing material because there you see the ways in which the UNIA was attracting black folk from Cuba as well, right? Mm-hmm. Not as active political activists per se, but the UNIA was able to plug itself into this pre-existing black associational life. So mm-hmm. the UNIA is one of many of these kinds of groups, West Indian, but also Afro-Cuban. Uh, and I was just struck by, you know, the fact that they're singing some RBI anthems in Spanish. I mean, there was an explicit attempt to try to appeal to black Cubans. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a book that was not about Garvey. It was really about Garveyites on the ground. Garveyites. And Garveyites on the ground spoke Spanish. They spoke English. They spoke French. And you see this extraordinary transcultural black world in those archives. Right. So your current research projects are on the history of sports. Um, You're working on, I think, two books? Yes, I am. Now, these projects appear to be a big shift from your first book on the African diaspora. How did you become interested in the history of professional sports? Yes. I was working on on an edited volume called Beyond El Barrio, Everyday Life in Latina, Mm -hmm. Latino America. It was published right at the same time that Fortune Diaspora was published. You know, I, I became a big believer in collaborative scholarship. Mm-hmm. I've always seen my work as putting black diasporic studies, Latin American, Latino studies in dialogue with each other mm-hmm. in a hemispheric sense, right? Because I, I come at these questions from the Caribbean and Latin America and the U.S. Mm-hmm. So I was working on that volume and we were looking at kind of what barrio means across Latino populations in the U.S. And I decided in that, doing that work that I would write an essay about uh, the politics uh, that were surrounding the reconstruction of Yankee Stadium in New York City in uh, 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I was really fascinated by the ways in which this iconic stadium, Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, is in the midst of a predominantly black and brown neighborhood, yet clearly has this imperial relationship with the surrounding community. Mm -hmm. And so I really just proceeded from there. And I've always had a passion for sport, uh, not just as a fan, but as a a site of critical inquiry. Hmm. You know, I think people think people work on sports that just love sports. And I do love sports. And and I could sit and watch LeBron James all day long, (laughs) whether he's played for the Cavs or the Heat or the Los Angeles Lakers. But to me, if you look at the history of black people in sports, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a history not just of upper mobility and exploitation, but it's, it's a history of creative labor. Right. Mm -hmm. Meaning that in the ways in which scholars and aficionados of jazz can talk about John Coltrane's Mm -hmm. solo and Billie Holiday's solo and this Mm -hmm. performance, I think scholars have an amazing opportunity to think about labor from the perspective of of athletes, of black athletes, because of their centrality to the expansion of sport in this country. Right. So 
you know, that's one of the overriding questions is how do we think about the black experience in sport beyond exploitation and facile integrationist narratives that we often see associated with uh, the way in which we tell the story of uh, the civil rights era. Mm -hmm. So the Texas book, uh, which is now called The Athletic Revolution in Texas, really looks at the entanglements between the black freedom struggle, Mm -hmm. feminism, and the expansion of professional collegiate sports in this country in the 1960s and 70s, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm really interested in explaining how is it that sport catalyzes social change racially in some ways, and yet it remains a site of of exploitation as well for black peoples and also other marginalized populations, right? So I became interested in this question because I think it allows us to think about, you know, revisit this question of integration and what it actually meant in this society, right? Mm -hmm. Or or get us to think about sport beyond uh, this notion that it's just a meritocratic kind of space where people can just triumph apart from exploitation or racism or sexism, right? And mm-hmm. so, um, so I've sort of proceeded along these lines, and, and I focus on Texas probably because I taught there for a long time, but because mm-hmm. I'm really interested in this former Jim Crow, mm-hmm. U.S. borderland colonial space, how it is transformed by the expansion of sport, but then how mm-hmm. those hierarchies get reconstituted as well. So uh, you've given some thought to the career of Muhammad Ali. Why do you think he's such an important figure in the history of professional sports? Well, he transcends sports, as we all know. So Ali, of course, uh, is a figure that, like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, have been repackaged as American heroes, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> they were disdained by many people in this country uh, right. when they were actually uh, alive and performing and doing their politics, but are now repackaged as uh, emblems of American democracy. And we could talk about that repackaging process or not. Mm-hmm. So, so Ali is obviously important when we think about African-American athletic activism, right, uh, for his courageous stance against the Vietnam War, for his decision to give up, you know, for three years, mm-hmm. uh, the prime of his career, of his earning potential and, and of the fame that, you know, people like Joe Lewis and other African-American athletes had experienced, although, you know, with consequences, as he knew. Uh, so Ali is important in that way. We know that story. We think about black athletic activism and the black power movement and also just thinking about African-American engagement with this Islam. Uh, he's extremely important. And, you know, when I write about Ali and his boxing matches in Texas in the Astrodome in the late 60s, I'm compelled by that story. But I'm also compelled by thinking about him. And again, it's his athletic labor, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he was a skilled performer. And he wasn't skilled just because he had natural athleticism, but, but he, he worked at his craft like all good performers. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there's a story of brutality of boxing there, which we could talk about. But I'm compelled by thinking about Ali as, again, as this artist, right, as, as somebody who's articulating a black masculinity. In fact, that actually in some ways is not in line with the Nation of Islam's uh, hyper-masculinist politics, right? He was very skilled at crafting this notion of prettiness and integrating it into his conception of blackness, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, people have talked about, but not, not, from a, not from a theoretical standpoint. I think boxing aficionados know this, but he gives us a sense of, of the capaciousness of black masculinity, you mm. know? And I, and I think there's something there to think about as you think about the, the kind of capaciousness of blackness and black manhood in that sense. Right. Well, let's shift to the present about this idea mm-hmm. of athleticism and black manhood and protests, right? What do you think about the reception of the football player Colin Kaepernick and his protests against the criminal justice system? Yeah. So I love the way you articulated Kaepernick. He is not protesting uh, the United States of America. He's protesting the brutality of black people by the police, right, which often gets mm-hmm. overlooked in the kind of dominant ways in which um, certain politicians talk about this in this country. So so what I find interesting about Kaepernick, and I should not, it's not just Kaepernick. As we know, mm-hmm. there are a range of athletes who are engaging in, in politics now, which is great. 
And part of that is the capaciousness of this group of athletic activists is because now we're in the post Nine era where you have women athletes who are very much part of this story, which often get overlooked. So some of the, the athletes who were protesting before Kaepernick were women in the WNBA, right? The, the Women's Professional Basketball League. You know, even people like Megan Rapinoe, who's also very active, the, the, the white uh, soccer player, right? So mm-hmm. what I find interesting, and I'm writing about this in a piece, mm-hmm. is to historicize contemporary black athletic and uh, athletic activism that's going on today, because I do think it's raising new questions beyond just racial integration. Mm-hmm. It is raising questions about police brutality. It is raising questions about uh, sexism in sport and homophobia in sport. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's because we have a wider range of actors who are taking stands now. Right. And I think that is historically significant because I think one of the legacies of the 60s era activism is that it was very masculinist in its politics. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, Harry Edwards, the, um, right. the pioneering uh, black sociologist, athletic activist, admits this in his uh, most recent, uh, the republication of, of his classic book, The Revolt of the Black Athlete, in which he says, look, we, we were not attentive to the conditions of black women mm. uh, athletes at the time. And he's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great that he admits that. So. What I find fascinating about this period is that athletes, you know, the let the, the the big names like Kaepernick and LeBron James and other folks are, are taking stands on the field and off, but I think we're seeing a wider range of politics coming from this group. And I think the fact that they're athletes is significant because I think that they're actually their their labor also informs us to think about otherwise possibilities, as I like to say, right? You know, what does what does America look like when you've got these actors at the center stage giving us new conceptions of personhood, of identity, of citizenship, of nation that are beyond a simple, uh, we need to just be better American citizens? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thinking about, um, and again, this may be an uh, easy answer for you, but um, you know, I assume last time when I asked a question about the Bronx <laughs> that it will be a particular answer. But here, I'll try it again. You're from the Bronx. Are you a Yankees fan or a Mets fan? You want me to? That's an easy question. That's not an easy question. No, I'm not a Yankee fan. You're not. I'm not a Yankee fan. I'm making all these assumptions. No, 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 no. That's my. That's. I'm all about disrupting our assumptions, as I'm sure you are, Fred. Right. In some ways. <laughs> so I. So I had my moments when I liked the home teams, but because mm-hmm. I'm a contrarian. Okay. And because for me, sport again is not just about being a homer or a nationalist. It's about mm-hmm. you know engaging in this experience of the otherwise, of, of seeing transcendent performance. I love transcendent performance, whether it's on the baseball field, the football, well, not the football field anymore, basketball, soccer, or in the arts, right, uh, or in the jazz club. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my interest in sports is no longer around teams. It is about, you know, looking at you know, the politics of sport, but also to look at the ways in which compelling athletic performance allows us to be inspired. I really need to be inspired every day if I'm going to do what I mm-hmm. do. And to me, you know, looking at you know, a local kid uh, do a slam dunk or a nice move on the soccer pitch or looking at, again, LeBron James do something extraordinary uh, makes me feel great. And I actually think it gives us a sense of what's possible for us as we move forward. Okay. So you're neither. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 am what I, would, I would say I'm a post-team sports spectator. Okay. Which people think that means that I'm a bandwagon person. But uh-huh. no, no, it's, it's emotionally easier for me to enjoy sports if I don't have a particular rooting interest in a certain team. I get compelled by teams at a certain time. Mm-hmm. So when LeBron went to Miami and decided to, you know, he was going to try to win a championship with them, I, I found that a compelling story. When he went back to Cleveland and you know decided he was going to go back home and lead the Cavs to the championship, I mean, I loved that story when they won the championship mm-hmm. in uh, 2016. I get swooped into certain sports storylines that get associated with teams, but but they're not reducible to sort of uh, the, the fandom of a certain sports team. Uh, although I suspect you shift that logic during the Olympics. <laughs> 
I don't know if that's true. Really? I don't know if that's true. You don't true. follow the country? And, no, yeah, no, yeah. no, no, no. I'm not you a nationalist friend. Oh, no, that's I'm not, right. Okay. I'm not. I, really? I'm, I'm very much, uh, I don't want to call myself cosmopolitan, but okay. I'm internationalist in my sensibilities. Uh-huh. I'm transcultural in my so, sensibilities, rooted in certain, you know, insurgent mm-hmm. black traditions, of course. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. and I, I sound like a scholar probably, yeah, but right. I'm able to translate that into my sports spectatorship. So do I love Simone Biles? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but can I get caught up in the French national team's winning of the World Cup last year? Yes, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Uh, so, okay. so, no, it doesn't correlate to sort of regional, national mm-hmm. um, affiliations. Okay. All right. Well. Uh, is that disappointing to you? No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm just, I guess just, I'm just an old soul. I just need to get out of my sort of colonial, post-colonial kind of thinking yeah. about sports. But <laughs> you know, you know, but the, you know I, I don't know that I'm representative. I think that, um, I, you know, I have these discussions with people all the time. Uh-huh. And by no means do I look down on anybody who's a traditional American patriot in the Olympics. I, I don't want to say I don't root for anybody because I absolutely do. Mm-hmm. I mean, what made the French team interesting are the reasons why that Laurent Dubois, the historian uh, cultural critic uh, of, of the Francophone imperial world uh, shows it very clearly in his book, Soccer Empire. To understand France's colonial history, you know, you just look at the history of soccer mm-hmm. and look at the ways in which the, these European teams are now populated by people from the, from the colonies, right? right? And how they're raising new questions about citizenship in Europe and how they're raising new possibilities of what Frenchness looks like in the mm-hmm. 21st century. Right. You know, so Dubois' work has really influenced my thinking about sport right. and political affiliations and transformations. Right, right. Um, I'm going to take you back to New York, but in a different way. Could you tell me about the course you taught on the anniversary of the 1968 student protests at Columbia? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, um, one of the reasons why I stopped working on Cuba, and it's, this was a tough decision, is that I really want to work on the histories of the communities that I live Huh. where I live. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to take that up as a political intellectual challenge. Mm-hmm. So I really want to ground myself in the history of this neighborhood, partly because my there's some family connections on my father's side here. And then I just started investigating a bit as I decided to teach a course on the 68 protests and their legacies, partly because I wanted to uh, I wanted to do something in light of the 50th anniversary, which just passed last year. And uh, it contains many elements that I find fascinating. Mm. There's a sport history there because, of course, part of the issue that's at stake there is Columbia University's decision to try to build a gym in Morningside Park. Mm-hmm. Eventually it was not built because of the student protests and the community protests. From local f- perspective, local black history, it's utterly fascinating, the ways in which these black students are able to kind of mobilize, connect with the Harlem community, and, and make claims, and they're successful, actually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my goal here is less to demonize Columbia, although I think that's probably easy to do in this story, but to right. think about what are the visions of Columbia's relationship to the surrounding community that are emanated by that story mm. that we might think about today, actually, yeah, right? Because yeah. it, we're not in an ivory tower situation. We say we're in the city of New York. Mm-hmm. And so the 68 project through, you know, by this point, sort of facilitating student research is about thinking about our relationship to this city as we move forward in the 21st century, you know. And so I'm very compelled by that challenge. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a wonderful opportunity to think about, you know, where we are today, right? In a moment of resurgent polarized politics, in a moment where people are groping for answers and solutions. You know, the 50 years ago, people were engaged in very similar predicaments. And I'm not saying we have to replicate what they did. Ideally, mm-hmm. we don't. But it can inform uh, the ways in which we might think about these issues in the present. Yeah. So from the perspective of students, um, what do you think is important to offer such a course like this? Columbia students are amazing. Mm-hmm. And I know I sound like a company man, but uh, <laughs> I really I mean that sincerely. We've got extraordinarily talented students on this campus who are hungry 
for history, mm -hmm. who are hungry for knowledge that will certainly allow them to figure out how they're going to live in the long run <laughs> mm -hmm. in a period in which this country is in, you know, we're in, we're in crisis right now, I think, right? So, like, I'm not the only person who would say that. Mm -hmm. So, they are a wonderful audience to work with because they, they are very interested in a lot of these questions that the 68 story raises. And I want to empower them not just to be activists, but to be scholars, mm -hmm. to do research on these questions, to go into the archives, to interview people, to mm -hmm. read political theory, to do ethnographic work, right? So mm -hmm. it's a way to inspire them to do scholarship, right, mm -hmm. in whatever form that might take them in the long run, I mean, right. as, as PhDs or, or people who are engaged in other sorts of impactful work. Yeah. So I've had a lot of fun doing this work and I and I see myself doing it for quite some time because I you know I my heart is here in New York mm -hmm. uh, I realize now in my late 40s uh, and if I can engage in a collaborative enterprise that allows us to think about how we can his harness historical knowledge to think about contemporary questions and to do that in this very local but yet extremely impactful way I think is a wonderful challenge for me so, Frank, I'm sure we can go on and on, but this has been terrific. I've enjoyed this conversation, and thanks for coming through the Dean's Table. Thank you so much, Fred. The Dean's Table is produced by Destry Maria Sibley, with production assistance from Jack Riley. Our technical engineers are A.J. Mangone and Ariana Sullivan. Our lead researcher is Kella Dieterville. Our branding is by Jessica Lillian. Our theme music is by Imperial. I'm Dean Harris. <laughs>